0: First Peter chapter three. So it's after Hebrews, James. First Peter three. By the way, if you have missed any messages, they should be on the internet. You're welcome to go to the church website, and you'll find a link to resonate and listen to those messages. All right, today we're in 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 22, and the, the title of this message is all about Christ's victory. And in this particular text here, in 1 Peter 3, it's really in the, in the middle of a whole paragraph. It's in the middle of a, of a larger unit of Peter's thoughts and, and his whole argument as he's dealing with our suffering. And so in the previous section, uh, in case you you. Don't remember or miss that message. Peter referred to the believer's appropriate response to unjust suffering. Uh, We saw that in verses 14 through 17. And in verses 8 through 12, the believers there who conduct their lives virtuously sometimes suffer unjust treatment as a result of just living a godly life. And then Peter makes this interesting point in verse 17. Look at verse 17, because he specifically says sometimes it's God's will that we suffer. Look at verse 17. He says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And so at this point in the paragraph, of this whole discussion on, on unjust suffering, we have this this attention that Peter is drawing us to, the attention of Jesus Christ. And we, we see exemplified in Christ unjust punishments. And so Peter's going to draw our attention to Christ, look to Christ. He is the, the prime example of unjust suffering and punishment. And he is the focus of our attention here. And so Peter outlines here the, the work of Jesus Christ uh, going from His suffering and His death on our behalf to his eventually His exaltation in heaven. So with that little introduction, look at our text, starting in verse 18. First Peter 3.18, these are the words of the living God. He says, "...for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God." not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. That ends our text for today in verse 22. So here's my proposition. I'll give it right at the beginning here for you. That God wants you to face your difficulties fearlessly by remembering the work of Christ. So our attention is drawn to Christ in this text. So how are we going to endure unjust suffering? Well, we need to look to Christ. What has He done? Well, if you're taking notes today, uh, today's message has three main points. And so we're going to look today at the character of Christ's suffering the consequences of Christ's suffering, and then the conclusion of Christ's suffering. So the finale, of the grand finale of all of this. So first of all, let's look at the character of Christ's suffering here in verse 18. Please notice how Christ's suffering is described here in verse 18. In this one verse, we have a beautiful, clear, concise statement of the gospel. And uh, Peter gives it in four points. First of all, notice... That Christ died for sins. That's what he says in verse 18. Christ died for sins. Why? Why would Christ come to die for sins? Well, sin, sin is your problem, your greatest problem. It's what separates us from God. God says, I can't allow you into heaven because of your sin. Because God's holy, we're not. And Peter over and over is saying, hey, be holy as God is holy our sin requires a punishment there has to be a penalty paid and in the old testament period god required animal sacrifices to really symbolize the need to atone for our sin so it needed it needed death sin needed a substitutionary atonement it needed the innocent to die for the sinner and so over and over again in the old testament period we see this Animal sacrifices taking place. But when you come to the New Testament, the last part of your Bible, we see Christ here is presented as the perfect sacrifice who fulfilled all of those Old Testament symbols. Remember, Hebrews tells us, keep looking to Christ. They're all pointing to Christ. Christ is superior. He's supreme. So Christ died for our sins. But number two, Christ died, notice the text says, once for all. Once for all, beautiful. I love that word once. The word once just means this is something that is a perpetual validity. It is not required repetition. It is not needed ever again. And so for the Jews, well, that was a totally new concept. Because at least once a year on the Day of Atonement, they had to slaughter animals to atone for their sin. They had slaughtered millions upon millions of animals over the centuries. And during the annual Passover celebration, it was said there was up to about 250,000 sheep that would be sacrificed. But Jesus Christ, one sacrificial death, ended centuries of slaughter. He beca- this, this insufficient parade of animals being slaughtered Came to, well, didn't need to be done. Sadly, some still continued, but it was, it didn't need to be. So there was a sufficient one time all sacrifice in Jesus. Number three, we see here that Christ died in the place of sinners. He died in the place of sinners. Notice it says that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Some of your Bibles might say the the just for the unjust. But what's the point? Well, as the perfect offering here, Christ willingly took upon himself the entire penalty that was due to unrighteous people. It was due to sinners. After all, the wages of sin is death. And so Christ took on himself that penalty. He became the substitutionary atonement. He made us at one with God. And that's the point. In verse 18, notice number four. See that Christ died. Why? For the purpose of bringing us to God. Bringing us to God. Now that phrase shows the triumph in Christ's death. Christ's death actually accomplished something, something grand. And so, when Christ died, you you, you see the Bible mentions the veil in the temple in Jerusalem ripped in two from top to bottom. Symbolically demonstrating now there was this open way to God. There was no longer this division because God opened it up through Christ. And so the heavenly holy of holy was, was, was then made available immediate access for all true believers. It's interesting here in verse 18, we have the gospel in this clear, concise statement. Uh, We see the need here. Why why do we need Christ? Why do we need a substitutionary atonement? Why does there need to be sacrifice for sin? Well, because we're needy people. We are needy people. That's that's the need because of our sin, but there's also a complete payment here because of Christ's death in our place. There's the all-sufficiency of that payment. It is a once-for-all sacrifice, and the outcome is our access to God. Those are the facts of the gospel, the message of the good news for lost sinners. As we move on, number two, we see the consequences of Christ's suffering. What did Christ accomplish? What did He do? Well, there's uh, five consequences in our text here, actually. So we're going to see that Christ died, was made alive, He preached, He saved, and He resurrected. First, notice Christ died The end of verse 18 tells us that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh. He was put to death in the flesh. Jesus had flesh. He has two natures. He has a human nature and his God nature combined into one person forever now. So he died, and and that's important because there are some critics who have actually disputed Christ's death. And they say that when Christ was hanging on the cross, He just fainted. And uh, then when He's put in the tomb, He he somehow revives in the tomb from His fainting, and then He's somehow able to walk out of the tomb on His own. But that phrase there in, in your Bible, put to death in the flesh, I hope leaves no doubt in your mind that when Christ was on the cross, His physical life ended. I say physical life, because you can't kill God, but you can kill a human being. And so Christ's physical life clearly ended, and that's why the Roman soldier didn't break his legs. Instead, put the spear through his side. So one of the consequences of Christ's suffering here is that Christ died. Number two, Christ was made alive. Now, there's some argument on this. That phrase, made alive, by the way, my Bible, uh, some of your Bibles may say something different, but my Bible has a small s spirit, it was made alive in the small s spirit. I believe that's a reference, by the way, to Christ's eternal inner person, and I know some of your Bibles may have a capital S spirit for that verse. Just bear in mind, sometimes translators are actually interpreting as opposed to translating when they say this, when they, they start capitalizing or doing various things. So let me explain why I, 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 I do like the ESV translation here in, in this phrase, small s spirit, as opposed to a capital S spirit. So if it's a capital S, then you think Holy Spirit, right? So is it the Holy Spirit, or is this Christ Spirit that was made alive? So for many reasons, I like the small s that being Christ Spirit uh, so, the Greek text, by the way, omits the definite article, the, so, it's, so if, if, it, if it had the definite article, the Spirit, then, then I would uh, definitely think it was the Holy Spirit, but in the Greek it doesn't have the definite article, the Spirit, okay, so it's, it suggests that Peter wasn't referring here to the Holy Spirit, but that Christ was spiritually alive, And so this phrase is showing a contrast here between Christ's physical life and his his spiritual life, if you will. So Peter's point here must be that through Christ, that, that, well, sorry, even though Christ's body is dead and was put in the tomb, he remained alive in his spirit. This needs to make sense to us because otherwise the next point's not going to make any sense. And and to me, it makes sense because you, you can't kill God. Now, why did Peter mention this? Well, that's because in the very next verse, verse 19, it says that Christ preached. Christ preached. So it says in verse 19, "...in which," which referring to His Spirit, because His Spirit is alive, "...so His Spirit went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison." So there, there, there must be something of Christ that is alive. Obviously, his body is dead. What is it of Christ that is alive and preaches? Well, let me just state before I get into this, this is a non-essential, and there is much disagreement amongst Christians on the interpretation of verse 19. In fact, I'm going to give you at least four interpretations. All, all these, by the way, coming from godly men, whom I love and respect, okay? But, but Christians don't agree on this. And, and frankly, it's okay. It's okay. I know some people struggle with disagreement. So let me just give you the main interpretations on this, and then I'm going to explain my particular view on this one, okay? So I'll put them on the screen here for you. Number one, here's the first interpretation, that Christ preached through Noah to the people before the flood. But they disobeyed and they're now in prison. Okay. Part of that's coming from the context because it does mention Noah in the context. So that's the first interpretation. Number two is that Christ preached to the spirits of Noah's wicked contemporaries who were confined in this, whatever this realm of the dead is. Number three, that Christ preached to fallen angels after his resurrection. And then number four is that Christ preached to fallen angels or demons in their prison while his body was laying in the tomb. Now, I hope I hope I haven't lost you at this point. Uh, and you might be looking at that, whoa, man, I've never even heard of some of those. Where'd they come from? Well, they come from all over, all right? If you have a study Bible, you may have uh, some footnotes on that. But which interpretation is right? They, they can't all be right? So Christ preaching to these spirits in prison, what does that mean? Great question. Well, I'll give you my view, and then I'll explain why I believe this. Well, my view is the last one, number four, that Christ preached to these fallen angels or the demons that were in this prison while Christ's body lay in the tomb. So does that make sense? Between between Christ's death and his resurrection... Christ's spirit was doing something, and then I'll explain why this is important. All right, so that's that's my view. So don't hang me, throw rotten tomatoes or whatever. Okay, but it's not important if you, you know, if you hold a different view, that's fine. But I, I do have to land somewhere. I feel like okay, and that's where I've landed at the moment. But my my reasons for believing that view at the moment is really coming from the grammar as well as the context. And then, when you compare scripture with scripture, this is how I've landed on this position. Okay, so so let me explain. First of all, notice the text. Here, okay, it, it, there's this phrase there in the text that says "in which" verse 19. It's referring to what occurred with Christ's living spirit. Verse 18. So while his physical body's laying in the tomb this in which in other words this is what christ is doing in his spirit what did he do he went it says he went it just means he he went from some place one place to another place his spirit went from one place to another place okay what did he do when he went from this one place to another place it says he proclaimed what does that mean it just means proclaimed means he preached he he heralded something. Uh, now, you need to understand something about heralds to understand what Christ is doing. We don't really have heralds nowadays, I don't think. But in the ancient world, heralds would often go to various towns and they would represent the, the ruler. They would make public announcements. You know, it's not like the, the king or the governor could just send out an email, right? There was no email at that time. So they would send out these heralds who would herald, tell announcements, right? Uh, Sometimes they would, uh, if if a general or a king won a battle, they would have heralds going before them, announcing the great victory of their king or their general. And this is basically what Christ is doing. He's the herald, uh, even though he's also the king, even though he's the one who's wrought this great victory through his his death on the cross. And so what's he doing? He's proclaiming victory. Well, read other scriptures. What is he proclaiming his victory over? Well, it, he was victorious over sin, death, Satan, and the demons. Well, that brings up this question, well, then, to whom did Christ preach? It says he proclaimed this, this message of victory to these spirits. Spirits. Well, they're... Not human beings. Uh, Some interpretations might say they are human beings. So let me explain why I don't think they are humans. Uh, If if they were human beings, Peter would have used a different word. Uh, He would have used the word souls. But he doesn't. He uses spirits. Spirits, by the way, is never used to refer to people in the New Testament except when the Greek... Adds the genitive case onto it. Now, I don't want to go into depth on the Greek, but the genitive case is not used here in this context. So, that's one reason why uh, we can say that it's referring to, to something that is not a human being. Okay? So, where are the spirits? Where are these spirits who are not human beings? Well, they're in something described as prison. Uh, We know this is an actual place. It's it's not just some, you know, I don't know, concept or whatever. It is an imprisonment. The book of Revelation, interestingly enough, calls this particular prison the bottomless pit, the abyss. Uh, In verse 20, by the way, Peter identifies these, these spirits as disobedient. They were disobedient. And so we need to ask the question, when did they disobey God? Well, the text says here, while Noah was building the ark. He spends 120 years doing that. He's, Noah was preaching. He was also a preacher. So when did that happen? Well, we need to go back to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 6 is going to help us out here. And if you If you want to see it, I'll put it on the screen here for you. So what was this disobedience that these... I believe they're angels. Uh, what what did they do that was so severe that God would throw them into this, impri- this imprisonment? Well, Genesis 6, verse 1. It's on the screen if you want to read. Genesis 6, 1 says, When man began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took out as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said... My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. I know that's a little confusing. So what's going on here? Who are the sons of God in this text? Again, there's debate on this, so it's not an essential of the faith, so we can disagree. But here's what one commentator said. I'm I'm quoting from the word biblical commentary. It says, "...the oldest interpretation, the traditional Jewish view of ancient rabbis and modern Jewish commentators, as well as the church fathers, is that the sons of God were demons or fallen angels." Now I agree. I agree with that interpretation. But is there biblical proof? You might ask. I, I do believe there's biblical proof. Let me explain. Well, the phrase "sons of God" here in Genesis six always refers to angels. In the other context, it's it's used in the Old Testament. Uh, therefore, I I believe these spirits must be fallen angels or demons, who were somehow Acting perversely, they had somehow, as the text says, gone outside the boundaries that God had given to them. They rebelled against God by by leaving their spirit world. They somehow came and and worked in the human realm in a way that was not pleasing to God. Uh, I can't fully explain everything here, but uh, my impression is this is the first reference in your Bible to demon possession where uh, the demons were, were using these possessing these men they were indwelling these men and and God was not pleased with that so why did the demons disobey God <laughs> you might ask why well the answer goes back to Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 Genesis 3:15 talks about this is in the midst of all the curses God was giving to Adam and Eve and the serpent, because of sin. God says that the serpent is is going to do some damage to the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. So Satan knew that somehow, some way, his days were numbered. He's going to lose ultimately. But he, he's not one to give up. He's gonna do everything he can to stop the Messiah. And he's been doing that for centuries. He's, he's tried to, he's tried genocide, killing babies. That didn't work. You know, Christ came, tried to kill babies again. That didn't work. So, we'll try to get Christ to sin in the wilderness. Well, that didn't work. You know, he's, he's tried all kinds of things to, to stop Christ from from dying on the cross as our perfect sacrifice. He failed. And so Satan and the demons wanted to hinder God's redemptive purpose. He wanted to prevent the seed of the woman, who is Christ, from crushing Satan's head. And so, praise God, they failed. They tried many times, and here's an example of that. But they failed. Instead, what do we have? We have Christ... Here, going to this place where he has locked up these demons. They can't get out. He's locked them up in the bottomless pit. Christ can come and go as he pleases. And so in his spirit, he walks into this place, preaches a glorious sermon of triumph. You guys tried to defeat me. You lost. I love it. I love it. And then he goes back to the tomb and arises from the grave. What a glorious sermon. Would have loved to have been there, wouldn't you? So here's the very demons trying to stop the seed of the woman from crushing the head of the snake. Genesis 3.15. And they failed. So my friends, what do we need to do? We need to applaud Christ's victory here over sin, death, and Satan, and the demons. Well, let me give you a, a, a second reason why I believe Christ preached to these demons in prison while his body's laying in the tomb. So, we've looked a little bit at the kind of the grammar and the context here, but also when you compare Scripture with Scripture, using Scripture as a commentary, if you will, of itself, I think you'll notice a consistent pattern here matching with this view. So, let me just read the Scriptures here. Peter addresses this as well in his second book he wrote. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into Tartarus, not Gehenna, Tartarus, and he committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Notice that word example. So these are examples to us. We need to take heed to what God has done with these angels and with the ungodly people during Noah's day as well as to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. God's judgment is sure. It is severe. It is final. But Jude also references these these demons and what what they did and what God did to them. So look at this one here. It's on the screen also. Jude, verses 6 and 7, says the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Again, notice Jude also uses the word example. These are examples to us. Even in the midst of their, their punishment, <coughs> sorry, they serve as an example. Notice also Jude references that they indulged in sexual immorality, uh, which is yet another reason why I think that these demons possess these men. Uh, to have children with the the uh, human being women. Anyway, those are some some references in scripture. I think I hope are a help to you. Uh, they they fit most consistently consistently with the view uh, that that we've mentioned number four. So speaking of number four, sorry. Well, we'll move on. What what else did, uh, did did the consequences of Christ's suffering? Well, number four, Christ saved. Christ saved. Verse 21 is, is confusing a little bit, and maybe in the way it's worded, because some people might come to the conclusion that, that maybe baptism saves you. So, so what's this all about in verse 21? Because it says baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Well, Peter's teaching here is going back to what happened with Noah and how God saved eight people in the ark. So the fact that eight people were in the ark, and they went through this judgment, but yet they were unharmed, is an analogy. So please understand, it's not teaching that baptism saves, otherwise that contradicts other clear portions of Scripture. So it can't be that, otherwise baptism becomes a work, a good work. Ephesians 2 says you're not saved by good works, but through Christ alone, by grace alone. Faith alone. So, this is an analogy here to the Christian's experience in salvation. How are you saved? By being in Christ. This whole passage is about Christ. So, we don't want to rip that verse out of its context. It's surrounded by Christ. And lest Peter's readers somehow mistakenly attribute some magical power to baptism here, Peter states. That the means of salvation is not a performance of some external ritual, but this is a symbol. Baptism symbolizes what Christ does, what God does. And that's why in verse 21 it says it's not a removal of dirt. Not as a removal of dirt. So Peter is not at all here referring to water baptism, but this is a figurative immersion. That's what baptism is. You are immersed in water when you're baptized. So this, Peter's saying, you are figuratively immersed with this union in Christ when God saves you. It's it's like the people, the eight people saved in the ark. They they were in that ark. It was a place of safety. If you're outside the ark, you, you died. It was God's judgment on you for not being in the ark so the point here is that Christ saves, right? Uh, Boy, we could go on and on on this, but don't miss that point, please. Christ saves. Uh, If you're not in Christ, you die in His judgment, just like people outside the ark died in God's judgment. That was not a place you wanted to be. So I, I struggle. When people say this is talking about water baptism, the analogy just doesn't fit, right? Because... The flood was God's judgment. You didn't want to be there. So, baptism, God's those two don't go together, do they? Baptism is a glorious picture of what God has done to save us. Well, we also see, as we move on, number five, that Christ resurrected. Christ resurrected. Uh, It says at the end of verse 21, it is, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're saved here through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, uh, I can't say it any better than... MacArthur Study Bible has a footnote. I'm just going to quote it for you. Here's what it says. The resurrection of Christ demonstrates God's acceptance of Christ's substitutionary death for the sins of those who believe. Judgment fell on Christ, just as the judgment of the water the floodwaters fell on the ark. The believer who is in Christ is thus in the ark of safety that will sail of the waters of judgment into eternal glory. End quote. So my friends, we, we need Christ. We need all the work of Christ. We need his, his perfect life. We need His perfect sacrifice. The Bible says He was buried and He rose again. Without that, there is no hope. There is no Gospel, But all of this has a conclusion. There is this grand finale to Christ's suffering. Let's take a look at this conclusion of Christ's suffering. Three points from verse 22. First of all, we see that Christ has gone into heaven. So where is Christ? Well, he's not in Tartarus. He's not still preaching the sermon to the demons. No, he's gone into heaven. The phrase gone into heaven, by the way, is a reference to Christ's ascension. Luke describes this in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, which says this As they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way is you saw him go into heaven. Well, there's many things we could take from that. But notice Christ's glorification here. In his first coming, he was humiliated, but he was, he was glorified. He goes into heaven. And, and by the way, he's going to come back as just as he went, it says. So Christ has gone into heaven. But number two, we see, where is he? He's at the Father's right hand. What does that mean? To be at the the right hand of God is this place of supreme privilege. It, It shows Christ's sovereignty over the entire universe. It is the supreme place of honor and authority for all eternity. He is at this place of honor, authority, and power, and rule. It is where Christ went after He finished His work of redemption. And by the way, that's where he rules from today. He's still there. You say, well, how much authority does Christ have in heaven? Well, read the last chapter in Matthew, chapter 28. It says he has all authority over heaven and earth. Therefore, go. <laughs> go, make disciples. But this text tells us, Specifically, number three, that Christ has authority over the angels' authorities and powers. By the way, those powers, angels, include Satan and the demons. Now, Peter's statement here emphasizes, emphasizes that the cross and the resurrection is what subjected the demons to Christ. And, and by the way, it also saves souls from eternal judgment. Without that, there would be no salvation. So this is the greatest triumph there, there's ever been over suffering of any righteous person. Remember, Christ was sinless. He didn't deserve to suffer. We do. But sometimes, as verse 17 says in, in 1 Peter 3, it is God's will that we suffer, even unjustly. And So, my friend, we, we need to see how God brings Triumph out of the suffering of the Savior. Because you and I are going to experience suffering. How are we going to get through it? Peter's saying, Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Because your bad days aren't even close to the bad days that Christ had. Compared to Him, we've never had a bad day, right? And so the only way we, we can really get through that is by looking to the one who triumphed over suffering. and So we need to see how God brings triumph out of Christ's suffering. And so Christians then can be confident that God's going to do the same for them in their suffering. The believers not only look to Christ as an example of triumph and suffering, we can now join with Christ in triumph. And so praise be to God who causes us to triumph in Christ. Now, some people they read texts like this and they just they scratch their heads, right? And and they say, so what? I mean, that's really cool, but so what? <laughs> what does that have to do with me? It, it, it doesn't have anything to do with me. Good question. So here's the doctrinal significance for you and for me. Christ's ascension has theological implications for our lives. Number one, Christ going up into heaven foreshadows our future ascension into heaven with Him. My friends, you have a future, a glorious future if you're a believer in Christ. If you're not a believer in Christ, well, I'm sorry, this is your best life now. But if you're a believer in Christ, your best life is yet to come. In fact, here's what First Thessalonians 4, verse 16 says. Again, it's on the screen if you want to see this. People in Thessalonica were obviously struggling, wondering, "Well, hey, what what happened to my loved one who's died? I, I thought Christ was coming back." So they're struggling with this. You know, what, what's going to happen to my mother or my my sister or my child who's already died? What's going to happen to them? And so Paul says, "Hey, if they're in Christ, they're going to rise." And we're all, all of us, even those who are alive, those who are dead in Christ, the the believers will will go to meet Christ in the air. And we will always be with the Lord. That's good news. Number two, Christ's ascension gives us assurance that our final home will be in heaven with Him. Paul just said so. So we will always be with the Lord. I heard an author ask the question one time, Is heaven, heaven without Jesus? Would you be happy in heaven without Jesus? If Jesus wasn't there, could you be happy? I hope your answer is no. It should be no. Because my friends, this is good news. We have this assurance that heaven will include Jesus. He is there. In fact, he says so in places like John 14, verse 2. Here's what Jesus said. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And will take you to Myself, that where I am, you may be also. Did you hear that, my friends? Where Jesus is, you're going to be there. You will be there with Jesus. For all eternity. That's good news. Well, here's some more good news for you. Number three, because of our union with Christ in his ascension, we're able to share now in part in Christ's authority over the universe, and we'll later share in it more fully. So I hope you understand when we talk about eternal life or eternal life in Christ, is it's not fully realized, of course. But there is this aspect that even now we have eternal life. It began at the moment of conversion. And this truth is what Paul points to in various places. Like, well, here's one. Ephesians 2, verse 6. It says that God raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When did that happen? If you're a Christian, it happened at the moment of your conversion. When God justified you, regenerated you. He raised you up with Christ. He seated you with Christ in those heavenly places. You say, well, but I'm not there yet. I'm still on earth, I know. (laughs) But in God's eyes, you're there. Does that make sense? Positionally, you're there. Even though practically, you're not there yet. So we're not physically present in heaven, of course, because we remain on earth at this present time. But if Christ's session at God's right hand refers to His reception of authority, then the fact that God has made us sit with Christ here means we're sharing in some measure in His authority the same authority that Christ has. And so the sharing in Christ's authority is going to be made more fully, in the life to come. For example, let me give you some scriptures that might help elaborate on this. Jesus promised in Revelation to one of those churches there, Revelation 2, verse 26, here's what Jesus said, The the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Is when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. So you get the connection. God the Father has authority, he gives authority to God the Son, Jesus Christ. God the Son, the head of the church, gives authority to to believers in the church. So we have we have this amazing authority, an amazing promise. This isn't the only place you see this, but. It's good news. One day we're going to fully understand it. In a small way, we have authority over God's creatures, which is why we're able to eat them. Some of you raise some of God's creatures. You, you, some of you have pets, right? That's, that's part of God's rule through you over His creation. And so in some small measure, we get to experience that even now, but in in the future we're going to fully understand that and fully realize that even more. So, again, here's the proposition for you, my friend. Don't lose sight of the forest amongst the trees. Don't lose sight of the forest amongst the trees. Here's what God wants for you, my friend. He wants you to face your difficulties, your suffering, your persecution, fearlessly, How are you going to do that? You have to keep looking to Christ. Focus on what He's accomplished and is still doing. He is at the Father's right hand because He ascended. You too will ascend one day if you're a believer in Christ. So Christ died for your sins, was buried. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. He rules over the entire universe. And by the way, that includes you. Includes me, even those who caused the persecution in our lives. He reigns supreme over it all. And so because of that, we can face our difficulties fearlessly because of who He is and what He's done. Praise God. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for the person and work of Christ. May He be exalted through this text and through what He's already done, even though we may not fully understand it. So, open our eyes that we would truly behold wonderful things from Your Word. May we apply this text even to our own suffering and the difficulties that we endure and the trials we go through. May we see the face of Christ in our suffering. May we know the fellowship of Your sufferings, as Paul prayed. In Philippians 3. So may we know You better. So thank You for suffering. May we believe, as verse 17 says, that sometimes that unjust suffering is, it is, sorry, it is Your will for us. May we believe that. May we live like that. And so may You be exalted through us, glorified and honored through our suffering. May ultimate triumph be realized as we live this life looking to the future. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.